Let's turn to Luke chapter 18. We're in the second week of the season of Lent, and the second week in our series called Decrease, Increase. Also, I'm a preacher, but I can't find my Bible, so I'm going to hope that I can read these words on the screen. It is somewhere in one of these pews, so I'm going to trust that you can turn there to Luke chapter 18. We will be there in just a moment. But first, let me tell you what we're up to in this series, Decrease, Increase. Beginning last week with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, what Jesus does, that's it, my dude, thanks, Aaron, what Jesus does last week is model for us this, Jesus models how we can decrease our stuff, our self, and our status so that we can increase our communion with God. Now, I don't recommend you do what Jesus did in the sense of a 40-day fast in the desert, but if He's calling you to that, go with God. But we saw Jesus' supreme example, and in the, tonight and in the next weeks of our season of Lent, the 40 days of fasting, giving, and praying that precede Easter, we're going to be looking at those S things in particular, our stuff, our self, and our status. So Jesus was the supreme example last week, and tonight we're going to look how He shows us how to decrease our stuff, or even better, our attachment to stuff, so that we might increase our communion with God. That's where we're at in this season of Lent, the 40 days that precede Easter. Of course, we're not counting Sundays. Now, with all that being said, Let's look at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. This is a very famous, sort of some people infamous, encounter that Jesus has with a rich person. This is in three of the Gospels, and from one Gospel writer we get that this guy is rich, and in one Gospel we get that this guy is young, and then in another Gospel we get a hint that this guy is a ruler. So it's most often known as the rich, young ruler. And that word ruler could very well just be like an aristocrat or a magistrate. I want us, as we hear this encounter, to imagine a young, wealthy man, a young man who's perhaps the son of a wealthy, vineyard-owning, land-owning family in the Judean countryside. So imagine a famous winery, and like this is the son that is to inherit the fortunes, for instance. We don't know that this is where he got his money from. We're just using some biblical imagination. He's young, he's wealthy, and he's some kind of aristocrat or magistrate. He's connected to a well-to-do family, and he has a lot of time on his hands to discern and discover the big things of the universe. So he's going to ask Jesus a big question that was common for people who dwelt and meditated on such spiritual things. But Jesus is going to give him a very uncommon answer. With all that being said, let's read Luke chapter 18, verse 18. I'm in Matthew. All right, guys, I'm getting there. <laughs> Luke 18, 18, ready? A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good 
except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, and we can pause there in Mark's gospel, he says, Jesus looked at him, do you know what he says? And loved him. Interesting. Though Jesus looked at him and loved him, he turned around to the rest of the crowd as this man walked away and says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this ask, well, uh, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies with, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter goes, uh, we have left all we had to follow you. (laughs) Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Then we're back at that eternal life question. I want to say a prayer that is in the Episcopal and Anglican tradition the prayer that churches all over the world pray on the second Sunday of Lent, and it goes like this. Could we read this out loud together? O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Becky, leave that up there. What's the Word of God? Or maybe who is the Word of God? But as we're about to see, the words that Jesus says are pretty crazy. But before we unpack that, I want to tell you that When I graduated seminary in 2011, I had this idea after training, it's a master's degree, so we're reading and we're just talking about all the finer points of theology and how we're going to go out and do it all right, and we're going to do church the way it was always supposed to be done, and we're the first people to figure it out. When I was finishing seminary, I had this idea that what ministry would be is that people, a church, would pay our salaries and we would just go have coffee every week, every day, and somebody would come to me and say, Dear Pastor, um, describe to me the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. I mean, what is TULIP, the five points of this, you know, 500-year-old Reformation doctrine? And I would say, well, I'm glad you asked. That's, that's what my job is. And then the next day I'd go and meet somebody and they would say, you know, 
I heard this theological term. It's called superlapsarianism. So, oh, you've heard of this? I just read a book about that last week. And I wish I was making that word up, but it's a real theological word. And I just said, but that's why I'm here. And then the next day I'd go meet at the Starbucks over there and they'd say, Pastor, dear Pastor, you know, I have this issue and they'd open their Bible and say, could you please exegete this text for me, my friend? I said, yes, 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 dear child. Man, in 2011, I thought for sure that's what it was. And then I get to stand up in front of some people and I would just spit knowledge and the good news. Amen. Let me tell you what I've learned what ministry is. Ready? When I go to White Rock Coffee in Rosalind in downtown Garland, when I get the phone call, when I get this, I really believe that in my life and your life and their life and their life, no one gives two rips about superlapsarianism. No one gives very much care these days to Calvinism and Arminianism, but if you want to talk about it, let's go. I've found that most questions and most meetings really boil down to only two questions, and they're these. Where's God, and what's next? And make no mistake, the first question is theological. Where is God? Where's God because I lost my job? Where's God because I'm in the hospital? Where's God because my dad died? Where's God because my kids are struggling? Where's God because... I don't sense him, feel him, know that he's there. Where's God because I have questions about this Bible that talks about him? Where's God, where's God, where's God? That is a theological question. It's also a relational question because God is a being. The next question, the what's next question, that's the practical question. If there is a God and if he's interactive and if he's willing and working in everyday life, so how do I get on board with whatever happens when my dad dies, I'm in a hospital, when I lose my job, when my kids are struggling? Where is God? Once we locate him on the Find My iPhone, what do we do next? I've really found that the biggest questions really boil down to these two things, and they're the two questions at the heart of this passage we just read in Luke. The rich young ruler comes up, and he says, where's God and how do I hedge my bets and get my investments set in the right place? Because I heard about the Greek philosophers that say you have an eternal soul. And I've heard from the Hebrew philosophers that the righteous probably end up with God in the end. But there's these Hebrews that say there's a resurrection and they're called the Pharisees. And then there's these Sadducees that say there is no resurrection. And then I've also heard about these Essene Jews that talk about how we can usher in the kingdom of God by our righteous living right now. So I want to know, where is God? Is he with those guys, those guys, those guys, those guys? Oh, Jesus is coming to town? Let me ask him. Hey, good teacher, what's your take? Where's God and how do I get where he's at? What's next? He asks a huge what's next question, and it's the what's next question I hope you've asked in your life, when I die, what's next? But what Jesus does with that big question is what Jesus always does, he asks a question. So on your screen, you see a question. So what we're going to do, before we answer and deal with what Jesus asks of him, and before we 
try to avoid the temptation of what preachers and teachers have done for millennia since Jesus told them to sell everything. We're going to try to avoid the temptation to dilute the word of Jesus. And we're going to do our best to try not to distance ourselves from what Jesus demands of people who are seeking eternal life. Are you with me on all this? So before we get there, and I hope give you some clarity of what's up and what Jesus is asking of us in our what's next question, we're going to look at four of these little questions very quickly, so we'll try to explain what's at the heart of their conversation. You with me on all this? The first question, what's up with this eternal life thing? What's he really asking? If you read Matthew's version of this, at the end of their conversation, Jesus says this really interesting phrase. He says, the renewal of all things. And if you look at the end of our conversation in Luke, he says this word age. Jesus is really talking in terms that sound a little bit different than, well, here's how you get to heaven when you die now, friend. I want you to raise your hand, close your eyes, bow your heads, and repeat after me. What Jesus is talking about is heaven, but it's a much more robust and fuller understanding of what we in American evangelicalism consider as heaven. What he's talking about is the thoroughly biblical, all over the Old and New Testament idea that eternal life equals the age to come. There is this old age that is marked by sin, death, destruction, pain, brokenness, and God has been at work first in the people of Israel and through the prophets, and then he brings Jesus onto the scene, and then Jesus goes, guess what? The time has come. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. The life in the age to come is starting right now in and amongst me and my work. And so when Jesus is walking around real, physical, actual places, marked by death, destruction, and lack, Jesus goes and raises people and heals them. Jesus goes and preaches peace and brings justice where there was destruction. And then Jesus goes and feeds people and restores community where there's lack. And, he's, and they say, what is this? And he says, this is the kingdom of God. And then John, who wrote about Jesus, says, the kingdom of God is in Jesus. Origen, one of the very first Christian theologians, says, Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. So Jesus comes onto the scene, and everybody that's been asking the question the rich young ruler says is, what's eternal life? How do I get there? It's so much bigger than going to heaven when you die. In fact, it's the fact that heaven comes to earth. That's the end game. So, you see there, Jesus in Matthew talks about eternal life as the renewal of all things. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about how we don't just go to heaven, although if we die today, I do believe we go to heaven because God is life itself, and if we're in Him, we're not going to cease to be in Him, so we're going to be in life. But guess what? At the end, 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 we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us, and everybody that's with God is going to somehow, in some mystery, be a part of this procession where heaven and earth are one. You've heard it said, let's just throw this earth out and just crumple it up and throw it away. And God says, no, 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 I'm making all things new. The all things he's talking about is heaven and earth. 
And so this eternal life, this life into age to come, is an, a life that's not just quantity in that it's eternal, it's quality. It's life as it's always meant to be lived. It's heaven and earth joined together like God always intended. Whether it was the garden with Adam and Eve or the new city that comes, we don't just go to heaven, although we do. The end game is that heaven comes to earth so that he may reign and rule all in all with life and love and justice. And what Jesus started 2,000 years ago is still being enacted every time someone is healed, every time justice is served, every time that someone is fed. More and more of God's rule and reign is breaking in and following the power and presence of God now, and it's a foretaste to when He returns and Jesus finishes what He started. So when I grow up in youth group and they're wonderful, lovely people telling me that the whole point of life is to just pray a prayer and go to heaven when you die, all of a sudden you start to read scripture and hear glimpses of it in the age to come and the renewal of all things. And you read Revelation and you read about resurrection and you see, oh, it's more, it's even better. And this guy wants in on it. And so he's asking, what is this? And a thoroughly biblical answer is that God is life and love itself. And when you hitch your wagon to him, you will see more life even in death. You will see more love and forgiveness even in the midst of destruction. You with me in all this? So what he's asking, literally as a Jewish person, he has a concept of this idea of the reign of God, but it's not very fleshed out, which leads us to the next big question. I'm going to go and find out from this good teacher his take. What's up with the good thing? And how many of you thought Jesus sounded snobby when he said good? <laughs> no one is good except God, thank you. I heard Greg Boyd preach about this. This was years and years ago. And this stuck with me because when he was responding to Jesus saying this good thing, he was like, so is Jesus making a new rule that every time you go to your kid's baseball game, you say, good job, you have that legalistic Christian that says, excuse me, sir, no one's good but God. Little Johnny may have had a ground rule double, but listen, only God is good. He's not making up a rule. Jesus calls other people good. What is Jesus doing? I think what Jesus is doing is trying to kick the tires and understand, are you really curious about real life, real reign of God, real age to come stuff? Are you really, really looking to God who is good? Are you really looking to the source? I think Jesus is kicking the tires because if this guy is really looking for the life in the age to come and God's life, then is he going to have the stomach for what comes next? So Jesus is kicking the tires, and he says, well, I mean, I don't know, man. Which leads to our third question. What's up with the commands thing? What's up with the thing Jesus says next? I don't know, man. Let's kick the tires. You know the commandments. How you been doing? You been lying? You been cheating? You love your mom and dad? How's that stacking up? 
this rich young ruler from a wealthy family who's had all the time in the world to think about such spiritual things, and he's checked all the boxes. He's climbed up the ladder to spiritual success, and he says, actually, man, ever since I was like these six kids sitting in one of these rows, man, I've been loving my mom and dad and not lying once. I would like to call that into question because two of these little angels live in my house, and I think they've broken a couple commands. They're wonderful kids. But he says he's done it all. You with me on this? What's up with the commands thing? Let's ask Jesus. Why is Jesus saying, you've kept all the rules? How many stories can you recall of Jesus condemning all the perfect rule keepers who've missed it? There's a story in these Gospels where the guy who's kept all the rules and done it all right, he goes and stands in the synagogue and he blows a trumpet and he's all high and mighty. He says, God, thanks for not making me like one of these sinners. And then y'all remember in Jesus' story, he's talking about how this sinner is over here beating his breast, crying out to God and said, have mercy. Which one of these two is living life near to the age to come? The guy that kept all the perfect rules or the guy that recognizes he can't keep any of the rules. Which one? How about when Jesus is talking to all these Pharisees, and then a Pharisee named Paul will write later, oh, by the way, in case you wondered, the law doesn't save anybody. Ever read Galatians and Romans? He literally says the law can justify no one. What is Jesus doing if you lined up 20 pastors from all different traditions and said, how do you inherit eternal life? I'm not sure two of them would say, keep the commandments. Are you with me on this? Yet Jesus just said that. And Jesus tells rule keepers all the time, sorry, bro, you think you're close, but you're far. And he goes to the Beatitude people and the Have Mercy people, and he says, but you guys, whew, you're right there. What is up with the commands thing? Are you still tracking and with me on all this? I think he's still kicking the tires to say, if you're so serious about keeping rules and you've checked all those boxes, are you willing to check the next box? Because the problem with religious folks that have a worldview that's all about checking boxes is that there's always going to be another box to check. There's always going to be the next thing to make sure I'm hedging my bets and getting all my, um, to get all of my ducks in a row and my investment sorted, I really believe that Jesus is kicking the tires and he's about to blow up his entire paradigm. And what he's about to do is say, can you check the ultimate box and then be done checking boxes enough that you can actually follow me? I think this is what's happening subtly in the four verses we've really just covered so far. Why good? Are you really looking to God? That's that big question. Where's God? Where's God? Are you really looking for God? Okay, what's next? What's next? Well, did you check all these boxes? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Are you ready to check this one? Because what Jesus is saying 
if you respond to this big what's next question, you'll never check a box again. You close the door on box checking because what Jesus is really telling him about eternal life is then come follow me. Here's a big idea for you to understand. Jesus does not ask us to focus on the narrow list of do's and don'ts. Don't focus on the narrow. I got to check this box. I got to make sure I'm going to church. I got to make sure I'm going to church. I got to make sure I'm reading. I got to make sure I'm doing Lent. I got to make sure I'm giving. I got to make sure I'm here. Don't focus on the narrow, but narrow your focus. When you set your feet and your face to Jesus, when you behold Him, contemplate Him, abide in Him, when you follow Him, the box checking tends to take care of itself. Why? Because the Spirit of God is within you and transforms you, and you're with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. And you're out of the box checking rat race that religion has had the corner of the market on for millennia, and then Jesus comes onto the scene and says, here's the kingdom of God, and they say, where? In the law, he says, no, follow me. And they say, Where? In the temple? He says, no, I'm where heaven and earth meets. And they say, where? In the land that we're supposed to inherit from Abraham? He goes, no, I'm actually going to make a multinational, multiracial, multigenerational people of God, and I'm going to live in them. Don't narrow your focus on anything but him. We get so focused on the narrow list of what it means to be a Christian in 2022 And that list is ever-evolving from every generation. But if we would narrow our focus on Him, everything would fall into place. You're not just checking boxes to hedge your bets. You're living life as it's meant to be lived because you're following life itself in a person. This is the context at work here in this conversation. So now what I'm going to do is ask one last question, and I'm going to illustrate it, and we're going to kind of wind down to the end. The fourth question, with all of that as subtext, what's up with Jesus then asking him for the ultimate checkbox to end all checkboxes? What's up with Jesus asking him to do what he apparently doesn't ask others to do? What did he ask this guy to do? You still lack one thing. What's he supposed to do? Sell everything. Show of hands, disciples, who sold everything. Or did you walk here? You're all clothed. What's up with Jesus asking him to do what apparently he doesn't ask others to do? I know I'm talking a lot, a lot of Bible and history, but it's also because I had an idea of what this sermon was going to be on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, I'm talking with Kelly, and I said, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus says some crazy things, and I'm like on the other side of the rabbit hole, and it's been a wild week of trying to unpack this and ask myself. Because really, the question behind this question is, is he asking me? Josephus was a historian, let's wait on that one, Josephus was a historian that claimed that Nicodemus that we met in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world conversation, right? Josephus was a historian in Jesus' day, a little before Jesus, and says that Nicodemus was the richest man in town. And Jesus meets with him at night and doesn't say, go sell everything. He says, be born again. The disciples that he starts to call, 
drop their nets, but they still have houses. So what's up with this? We'll meet Zacchaeus in a couple paragraphs in Luke 18, and Zacchaeus gets off the hook by only giving up a third of his stuff. What's up with that? Am I creating some kind of, am I muddying the waters, or is this not wild to you? What's up with this? Now, it seems like he's not asking them to do the same thing, but I'm actually telling you he is. It's all different ways of saying the same thing. Let me illustrate what I mean. When we got married, can we back that up one more time, Becky? You're doing great, and I'm sorry. When we got married, we had to get engaged first. But Amy and I had dated for several years, and I just was imagining this week if I had planned this whole proposal that Kristen Payne helped me orchestrate to like go wait outside of Amy's apartment and have pictures of us and all the decoration stuff. And I just wonder, what if that scene, instead of saying, will you marry me, what if I asked her the question, what must I do to be married to you? And what if Amy said, down there at the Barron's Apartments in Mesquite, Texas, <laughs> don't cheat, be nice, honor my father and mother, don't lie, don't murder me. She says, can you do that? And I said, all of this I've done since my youth. I've not murdered you once. <laughs> Amy, we've been dating for years. I've done it. I've done it all. I've checked all these boxes. I'm pretty nice. Okay. She says, that sounds great. One more thing. What must you do to be married to me? Here's what you need to do. I want you to close the doors on all others. All other partners, all other people, it's me and you. I want you to close the doors on all others. I want you to close the door on your old way of life. I want you to leave your parents and your family of origin and cleave to me so we can make a new family. I want us to merge our lives together. I think we're going to merge our checking accounts together. And I want us to become one, what must you do to marry me? Close the door on everything and merge your life with me. Can you do that? What happens if I'm sitting there and I say, man, it was a lot easier just not to murder her. What if I walked away very sad because it was just too much? Because I like playing Magic the Gathering till 3 a.m. with my friend Frankie Rendon when I was 22. What if I didn't want to close the door on all these other women in the world? I think that would have been a problem. <laughs> what if I walked away very sad because I could not see in her enough beauty and grace drawing me to say, yes, I will become one with you and we will merge our lives together. 
the reason that Jesus does ask the same of Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, and every disciple, and this rich young ruler, whether or not they still had a house or still had a field, what he does ask is that you close the door on every other God, on every other box-checking religion, on every other way or conception of who you think God to be, and I want you to put all your chips into the center of the table and go all in and follow me, merge your life with mine, abide in me, and And when you do this and give up everything, you find that I will give you everything and then some in return. That's the slide. That's why Jesus asks Nicodemus, be born again. You have one concept of what a religious, God-fearing person looks like. Bro, you haven't taken the red pill of the matrix and been born anew into life in the new age yet. You thought, but you're wrong. You need to be born again. You need to literally start over. You need to close the door on all your wealth, all your status, all your privilege. Zacchaeus, bro, you thought that you had all the money, you had all the clout, you had the best job, but he saw Jesus. He fell in love with Jesus. Jesus didn't ask him to give up stuff. He was so moved. He was so changed. He said, will you marry me, Jesus? Look, I'll show you. Everything I've stolen, I'm going to give back more. I'm going to give up everything because I'm hitching my wagon to you. And the reason why he asks this guy to go sell it all is because if you're really serious about life in the new age, if you're really serious about checking this box, you won't give me yourself and follow me if you can't give them your stuff. You can't say, Jesus, I'm yours and everything, and he says, cool, go find me rooting through your trash in downtown Dallas, for what you do to the least of these, you also do to me. We say, Jesus, I'm yours. And in Matthew 25, he tells a parable that says, I don't know you. Did you clothe and feed? Were you so enraptured and married to me that you merged our lives so completely, you've given yourself so completely that you actually don't bat much of an eye when you go and give your food and clothes and stuff. And then Jesus says something like this in Luke 14, just a few days before. (laughs) I told you he said some crazy things. Jesus is telling a crowd of people, it's going to cost you. And we say, yes, let's take up our cross daily. He says, no, you need to be like a builder. You need to budget this thing out. Don't start the building project if you ain't got the money in your checking account. You're going to overdraw. So he closes this passage that says nobody goes to war if they don't have people to actually finish this thing. So he says, look, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. If you're not willing to close the door on the old age, on the old way of life, to every other partner, to every other SUV, to every other stock and interest, if you aren't willing to close the door when it's asked of you now or later, then you really aren't going to give me your whole self. Because where your heart is, where your tre- that's where your treasure is. So if you love this more than you're willing to be nudged to give it to the poor, you don't love me more than the $100. 
you count the cost and says, Jesus, I give you my whole life. And yet, if we're not willing to dispossess ourselves of possessions in the sense that nothing can be given or taken that is more valuable than Jesus, then we are not truly giving our full selves to him. So we dispossess ourselves of your possessions now. We disentangle ourselves from the status of stuff. And here's the deal. Keep your van because you can still drive yourself and others. But if you have this sense that maybe this is too much car or this is too much this and you start to follow Jesus and ask him, where's God and what's next? And he starts really pulling a number on you. Let's talk about it. But he might ask you to dispossess yourself of some things. And I wish it were not so, except that I see this happening in the Jesus community in the book of Acts. People had possessions. They had tracts of land. But when they found a need, they didn't love it too much that they wouldn't sell it and distribute it to the church and fund the mission. By the way, do you know where the early church met? In houses. Who owned those houses? disciples. There is a way of possessing things that doesn't possess you. What Jesus is saying in Luke 14 and what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, to the wealthiest nation the world has ever known, is you should hold nothing so tightly that you can't give it to me in the kingdom and practice the life in the new age. You should hold nothing as tightly as you're holding on to me. Dispossess yourself of your possessions now so that when it's time to give it away or when it gets taken away, it will sting, it will hurt, it will feel like a little death, and you'll know a little bit, is this what you meant to deny myself, take up my cross and follow you and see life on the other side? It won't matter in the long run because you've put all your investments safely in the kingdom of God. That's why he says, put your treasure there in heaven and then come follow me. Jesus asks him to do what he asks all of us to do. Give your whole self. And sometimes, a lot of the times, that does mean your stuff. But understand that this Wednesday you're going to go to somebody's house for neighborhood group and they're not going to sell it. But if you lose it, is that more valuable to you than Jesus? Which is why when Peter says, as we round home, hey Jesus, look man, bro, I've been sleeping in these randos' houses for three years with you. <laughs> I got a wife back home. You know Peter had a mother-in-law? I don't think Peter's wife was, was going with him. Peter may have had kids. Peter left his wife to go on this adventure with Jesus for three years. And Peter says, hey, dude, we dropped our nets and went. And he says, yeah, dude, you did. So what's up? Look back at Luke 18 toward the end of the passage. What is he talking about? Anybody that left all this stuff is going to find this much and more in this age. You remember the old age? And then next time, much more in the age to come, eternal life. You with me still? What is he talking about? Let's imagine that Jesus is crucified. Let's not imagine that he was crucified. <laughs> he raised from the dead. He's spent 40 days with the disciples. Peter's kicking it in Jerusalem. 
Let's imagine that Peter gets word that his wife, and if he has kids back in Galilee, lose their home. Maybe word got out that he was a follower of the way, he was following a crucified, failed king, and so they lose their house. Or maybe his kid is super sick. And all of a sudden, everything is spiraling out of control. He doesn't have to give up that stuff, he's losing it. What happens then when he gets word? Let's imagine that Peter says, send them word to come, because there's this kingdom community that's going to give them a place to live. There's a power unleashed on the world in the Spirit of God where I've seen people get healed of much worse than what she has. Come. And then Peter's neighbor and Peter's friend here and then they get persecuted, and they have to move, and then they find that even in Samaria, there's this other wave of women who are following Jesus and supporting the work through their business and their hands, and they get to come and find a place now in this age of people who are practicing for the age to come. And then in the book of Acts chapter 2, that they counted everything as not their own, but it's for God and His kingdom. So then you can eat and you can eat because it's not my food and my money to begin with. God gave it to me. I don't possess it. I'm not a bucket to receive it. I'm a bridge to connect your need with what God has given me. So maybe what Jesus is saying at the end is when you sell everything you have and dispossess yourself of everything and follow me, guess what? When you need a place to stay, you're going to have it. Guess what? When you need a meal to eat, you're going to have it. Literally, physically, in this new kingdom family community. And then guess what? The banquet when heaven and earth is joined and all things are renewed and we're raised and death dies, you won't even begin to imagine how much better it is than that hoverboard that you bought. (laughs) I don't know. I think this is what Jesus is saying, and it's radical. This radical kind of surrender leads to a radical generosity that then leads to a radical community who is already practicing the life of the age to come under the reign of God now. The kingdom of God has come and is coming and will come in fullness. We're practicing for the day when there will be no more tears and everybody has enough. We got to practice today for a world in which there's no more frivolous wars trying to take a peaceful nation that did not instigate. We got to practice now loving our enemy and turning the other cheek and fighting and making peace, not violence and death, because the age to come is marked by light and life, not darkness and death. We practice the Jesus way and follow Him now, dispossessing and closing ourselves off from the old way and the old age, and we find now and then there's more than we could have ever dreamed of. So the practice, the practicality of it is to imagine yourself maybe closing your eyes And considering that death has happened, this is another practice I mentioned Greg Boyd earlier. This is something I heard Greg Boyd do. Imagine yourself standing before Jesus 
Everything you had in your bank is gone. Everything you had in your portfolio, your house, your car, your job, it's all gone. In the quiet stillness after death, you're standing before Jesus, and just like this rich young ruler, he looks at you and he loves you. And you start to imagine and practice, I'm standing before Jesus, what do I have to inherit eternal life? Is it my education? Is it my talent? Is it my giftedness? Is it my stuff? Is it my status? Because I'm standing before Jesus, completely vulnerable, completely naked, and, and, and none of those things seem to have any merit anymore. And what would you say to him? Maybe you'd say, Jesus, all I have is you. And you begin to practice and rehearse this idea, this understanding that whatever it is that's giving me more life, where I'm staking more of my weight and trust, you're not wrong for that because we need houses, we need cars, we work with people that don't have enough, and so we want to share what we have. Don't feel guilty for getting life and being thankful, but put it in its proper place. Because when push comes to shove and at the end of it all, you have Jesus and nothing else. There's one thing to die, and it is a whole other thing to die in Christ. And I hope you understand the difference. And so what we do now and we practice now, if you haven't said yes to him once, if you haven't said yes to him for a while, say, Jesus, I give myself to you. Jesus, I give my stuff to you. Jesus, I want to believe and live the words I say when I say you are Lord and I give you everything. I believe, but help my unbelief. We come to you in trust and faith that we cannot check enough boxes, so we need you. We come to the end of ourself and our stuff and find that you are all we need. We trust in the cross that liberated us from sin, death, and evil, that forgave us of sin and bought for us life in the age that is to come. Would you find us faithful now and would you know us then? For though we walk with you imperfectly, may we walk step by step in faithful, attentive trust to give ourself and everything to you. In Jesus' name.